Before the next episode of XJob Downloaded starts, I have a big favour to ask. If you've enjoyed any of our episodes so far, please can you click on the follow button on your platform. I'm on Apple, Spotify, Google, Amazon and YouTube. It costs nothing to follow, but makes a real difference to me as a podcast producer. Thank you. This is the second part of Colin's interview. Sit back, listen, enjoy and review. We'll see you at the end. And all of a sudden I'm doing murders and then I did Operation Welling. What was Operation Welling? Operation Welling was jointly between the Met and BTP and Camden and um, the other Islington Council. Clean up King's Cross. Right. Drugs and sex and drugs and rock and roll. Yeah. Kings Cross. Um, it, it wasn't uh, gentrified then, was it? No, no not I mean, at all. Now. I was, oh, God, I was so shocked, Paul. I went, I went down there. I did a little bit of work for Camden Council um, about five, six years ago. And I got off the train at King's Cross and looked at I mean, the wrong I've got off the wrong yeah. stop, you know? Just unbelievable. But then it was... So what we had was we had a hide, which was there until a few years ago, right up on the top of King's Cross, like matte black wood with cameras in. And we had test purchasers... And they were, they'd spend six weeks buying crack and heroin, mostly crack. Yeah. And then we'd all sit up in the control room and wait for the same people to come out and then leap on them and nick them. And uh, it was, I didn't really want to do it. I've never really been that keen on doing drugs work, but I learned a load. I learned a load about, so I had to be trained to do controlling test purchase undercover operations yeah, and stuff yeah. like that, you know. And it got me into that sort of side of covert policing that I knew nothing about. Um, and I was really pleased that I did it in the end. And, and, and uh, yeah, I did that there. And then they did another reorganisation in the Met. And um, I I got the chance to go to uh, to be a staff officer. Oh, did you? At, at the um, Yard? No, at Area Headquarters, Edmonton. Right. And there's a guy called Tony Comben, who, again, sadly, is dead now, but he ended up at uh, Wethersfield as the deputy of the... MOD did, police did when, really? when Wally Boyer was the chief there, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, and uh, he was a commander support for the old area, but was going to be the commander crime for the new area. Right. And he had a civilian staff officer for his current role, but he wanted a staff officer for his future role. And he wants it now because essentially my job was creating the crime OCUs, as I had. So when they went to yeah. permanent murder squads and permanent child protection teams, and perm- yeah. all the other stuff was creating that. And I spent a long time going around to divisional chief superintendents and said, um, I'm going to take three of your DCs from your cars, but we'll never come calling again, yeah. sort of thing. You know, it was, it was that. And I had to do, I learned a lot there about sort of strategic stuff. And that was the, the turkeys voting for Christmas because the the unofficial kind of um, gentleman's agreement was, was that by the time we finished all this, uh, my job would be, as DI on the newly formed stolen vehicle squad right. for that area, which I really fancy. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> um, and I'd done, you know, I'd done two years as DI on division, done a few murders, bits and bobs. So it was okay. I was happy with doing that. Um, and then two things happened. One was that Tony Coleman got offered the job at the MOD police and with his pensions was he went and somebody I didn't know replaced him. Nice enough guy. But actually, and this is the turkey's voting for Christmas, I the Home Office took car crime out of the key performance indicators and we could no longer justify having a dedicated stolen vehicle squad. And um, so I... Unbelievable. I wrote off my own job. 
and said, no, we're not doing it now. And that's So all I had left was to go on one of the child protection teams or the murder right. squads. And I didn't want to do child protection. I had a young family. I didn't really want to do the murder squad. So I could have stayed and been, his, been the new guy's um, staff officer, but I didn't. I thought I'd done enough of that. And out of the blue, I bumped into an old superintendent called Margaret Parker, um, who'd been my superintendent for a while and I hadn't really got on with, to be honest. Um, it's pretty mildly at Holloway. <laughs> And she was looking for a crime manager because there were no promotions. She didn't have, and she didn't think that she didn't have an in-house DI she could sort of temporarily promote. And she said, how about we bury the hatchet and uh, oh, really? work for me? So I went and did an interview and got the job. So I was crime manager at Chingford uh, for a bit. And that was, yeah, it was interesting. I had a good time there as well, really. Um, and part of that, I got involved in doing some stuff around repeat victimisation for burglaries and and... We formed the first, I think it was the first in the country, certainly the first um, vulnerable persons unit. So yeah. we, so I got domestic violence and mispers and elder abuse all together under one roof with proper detectives, um, which is quite good. And we tried looking at repeat victimisation for domestic violence as well. And part of the repeat victimisation stuff, I went up to Yorkshire and I went to visit Bradford where they were doing it and I got chatting to them then and got on with the guy there. And uh, that was when... They advertised in the back of the police review for DCIs and the Met still weren't having promotions. And my first wife had never been, I think, north of Cambridge in her life. Right. Um, but I applied and I got it. And we went up there and uh, we got a house in... We lived in near Homefirth last of summer. Oh, yeah. yeah nice. so Huddersfield, south of Huddersfield, between Huddersfield and Barnsley. And we had room for the horses that they had and her and my daughter and, and my little boy started growing up talking like Dickie Bird and saying water and wood <laughs> and school. He doesn't now. Um, and it was all quite good. And I, I was on division in North Bradford for about 18 months and then didn't apply but just got told you're head of force intelligence from next week. And so I was at Wakefield as head of intelligence, um, which was a good job. And we, 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 we'd we sort of done this, what became the forerunner to the national intelligence model, and we had this sort of tasking process. And the DCI force intelligence was right at the centre. I char- chaired the weekly tasking meeting for all the force-level squads. And it was quite amusing because, you you know, I talk like I talk, and it was Yorkshire. And I'd come back to London to see the mates <laughs> for a weekend, and I'd go into the office and... Dawn, particularly, who was my deputy office manager, she, I think she came from Pontefract or Castleford or somewhere, and she said, oh, Mr Sutton, you've been to London this weekend, haven't you? I said, yeah, I did actually, had you? You're talking old Cockney again. <laughs> <laughs> See, like um, <clears throat> and, and it was quite amusing. There was a guy called Jerry Dickinson, who was a great bloke, who was the drug squad DCO. He's actually the kind of model for Frost. Oh, right, West yeah. Yorkshire have got quite a good history of assisting drama. Oh, like they do with Happy Valley. The reason Happy oh, Valley is brilliant. so good is is that lots of reasons. They're very well written and they're great actors. But actually, West Yorkshire have embraced it and helped them to make it, yeah? Visionary. If only other yeah. forces, yeah, I mean, they, we see that now, yeah, if only exactly. other forces yeah. dig in. Yeah, so they've they've done that. And and um, Jerry was the, yeah, when they did Frost, they helped with, even the sort of Frost warrant card was modelled on a West Yorkshire warrant card at the time. And, and Jerry was a bit like, David J. Sawyer with the stars, he had silverish hair, Jerry, a good guy. And they'd take the mickey out of me not knowing their words because they've got words like growler is a meat pie. Well, it means something very different in the South, I think. But, <laughs> um, 
Uh, Although you could say no. Anyway, anyway, um, uh, and uh, uh, and <laughs> Snicket and Ginnel, which are like little alleys, yeah. yeah, things like that. And of course, I could sometimes occasionally say words. Well, and they had this thing that they thought everybody, anything south of Barnsley was the Met. So I'd have, for says, boss, boss, DI from Met wants you. So I go to the phone. Hello, kind of son. Oh, hello. It's uh, it's John Steele. I'm the DCI Force Intelligence in. Devon and Cornwall. <laughs> it's not the Met. It's south of Barnsley. It must be the Met. They were, they were great. I loved it there. I loved working there. It was brilliant. You had so much var- variation because you've got City, you've got Leeds, you've got Bradford. Um, yeah, big towns like Huddersfield, Halifax, this sort of thing. But you've also got the rural stuff and you've got bits of oh, yeah, deprivation and you've got social issues, you've got diversity issues. You know, just got mm. all sorts going on there. So it was a really good place to work. And what year was this? 96 I went up there. And... Um, yeah, I, I, I was. I mean, what happened was we had a we had a TSU technical support unit, yeah, which was mine, and uh, TP test purchase undercover unit, yeah, which was mine, and we we had the telephone intelligence unit. So just I, I want the NHS to do this about getting um, appointments to see a GP because I don't know about you, it's a nightmare. Yeah, yeah. Trying to so when I went there, one of the big problems was. Telephone intelligence, telephone work, cell sighting and stuff had just really taken off. Yeah. And everybody on the divisions, I think they had 17 divisions in my Yorkshire then, wanted stuff done for their sort of low-level clients and we couldn't cope. Yeah. And this backlog was sort of five weeks or something. And I'm saying, not being funny, but there'll be a load of those that five weeks on, then it's no use to them now anyway. So, not relevant. Right. So I sent an email out to them and said, right, Every single request you've made has gone in the bin. Year zero, Pol Pot, we started to scratch. Yeah. If any of the ones you've got you still need, send them in again. Cut the, cut the waiting list down three days. Done. Easy, isn't it? You know, just just be bold yeah. to do something. But, yes, I did. That, that was that was good there, and, and we had that going on. And Keith Hellowell was the chief when I was oh, yeah. there. He became the drug czar, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And... Um, he was, I quite liked Keith. He was, he was nice. And they, they literally do, you literally do go to see the chief when you get promoted. You don't quite get touched on the shoulder. But I went with the inspectors that were getting promoted, chief inspector, the same day as me. And we go into his office and he welcomes us and congratulates us there. And, you know, it doesn't sort of happen by an email like it did in the Met. You actually get, and they, they called us and said, oh, yeah, he'll, he'll be going to see the chief soon, you know, meaning he's going to get promoted soon. Um, and he was quite a good guy. And what he did was, a lot of the West Yorkshire Police buildings at that time had mobile phone masts on their roof because they tended to be in those positions. And yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's quite a hilly sort of area and it was good. And they rented it to the... And somehow it had, it was a, it had been done that that rental, which was a quarter of a million pound a year, maybe more, didn't sort of go through the books. It was like... it came, I mean, Nothing dishonest, but it was... It was in the. It went into a separate budget. Wow! And he gave that budget or substantial amount of it to the technical support unit. Right. So that you know, virtually on a weekly basis, I'd, they'd say, "Oh, can you come over? We've got a demonstration of some new way of defeating alarms." Because I, actually, I had a covert entry person as well, and oh, it was just really, you know, it was like being M or Q or yeah. whatever. It is. You know, you, you got go, all the, people all just the toys. do all these toys, and then 
Keith Hellebore left, new chief came in, and somebody showed him, I said, oh, no, we're not doing that. And our budget got cut to about 40 grand, you know, so we lost that. But, yeah, it was good. It was a good place to work. How do you, I mean, he had a very strong view around drugs and mm. whatever. What, what, what's your view on the decriminalisation of... <sighs> It'd be something else for the government to tax and waste their money on, I guess. I, I, I don't know. I mean, <sighs> the situation we had when I was on my division in Bradford, we had two estates, Stalpedge and can't remember the other one was called. Mom's Stalpedge, anyway. Um, and they were like 1950s, low rise. Yeah. And there were big drug problems, heroin problems on them. And they also had a system, I don't know what it was like in Essex, but in the Met, like informant payments had to be done by quite senior officers. West Yorkshire, up to something, £250, you, Divisional DCI could do. Yeah. yeah. And what they would do is they would get, Everybody on these estates were informing on Ravenscliff, that was the other one, Ravenscliff and Thorpe Edge. Everyone on Ravenscliff and Thorpe Edge was informing on everybody else. Yeah. Sometimes people who lived in the same flat were informing yeah. each other. Then I was in the bar, because we still had police bars yeah. there then as well, upstairs, with Mick Oddie, who was an ex-Met PC who'd gone back up home to Yorkshire and, and who was my DI at, at the division. And we'd had a beer or two and our wives were picking us up and uh, we'd put in the world to rights like you do. And he said, what's the overtime budget on this division? So I said, I think it was £7 million. Let's say it was £7 million a year. He said, right, he said, if we were to cut the overtime by half and spend £3.5 million on wholesale heroin and give it away at the front counter, we'd stop more crime than anything else we could do. Mm. And he was right. Because essentially what was happening was you would somebody would come in, or, you know, somebody would say, well, I've got informal information, that, Video recorder, remember them, VCR that was yeah, yeah. out of that flat yesterday. So-and-so's got it. And the project team, as they call them, like Crime Squad, the proactive team, would go around there, get a warrant quickly, go around there, do the door, get it back, nick the person with it, and the informant would get 20 quid. And the informant would spend the 20 quid at the same heroin dealer <laughs> yeah. that the criminal would have spent the 20 quid he'd have got if he'd have sold the video recorder. Yeah. And it's just... Circle. But I must tell you about something without this. Something that was different. Again, I don't know Essex. The Met was was so much more sort of rule bound, and 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 I don't mean in a, I don't mean West Yorkshire in a slack way, but they just allowed you to be more creative in in how you were policing it. One of the things we were able to do was we rented um, we rented cars from a garage on the division that like their park exchanges. And we we had to get them MOT by the police yep. workshop to make sure they were roadworthy. But they would charge a tenner a week for each of these cars. Wow. So we'd get, you know, old sort of maestros and Montegos and sort of rusty and use them for the project team. And for, yep. Yeah, it was fantastic. Yeah, it was really good. Well, we, we got some information. It was good information. At one of these estates, what was happening was a burglar was going round, doing a burglary or sometimes two, the bags, getting on the mobile, calling the, what they call a private hire, but, you know, mini yeah. cab we call in London, but um, to come pick them up and take them home. And they said, and we've watched, and, yeah, this is happening. So there's there's a book in my thing there, in my cupboard, somewhere. The Irish Detective in Yorkshire by Jerry O'Shea. Was, Jerry O'Shea is my DS and my crimes. Right. right. And he says, I've got an idea, boss. What do you think of this? So we've got this Austin Montego, Air Registration Austin Montego. He went down to... Bradford City Council and got one of the private hire plates, yep. but had it 
blank, not engraved with the registration, so we could put it on with a stencil yeah. and a, a, a pen. Front property store got a. This is the slightly dubious <laughs> legalistic thing about it. Yeah, although this is before a ripper, so it might be okay. <clears throat> got a scanner. Oh yeah. From the property store, scanned, and what they did was they waited for what they thought was a burglar on the estate calling up for a private home. Fantastic. Yeah. Put a uniform car into the real one. Routine stop service your car. Have you got insurance? You know. Slip the Montego in with all the kit in. Burglar, swag, in the car. Where do you want to go, mate? Drives him straight in the backyard. And we did it twice. <laughs> <laughs> that isn't that fantastic? Yeah, but it is. You know, it's just... Audacious. It is audacious. Legal, audacious, but it keeps... It puts them on edge. They're the ones that, that are thinking about, well, actually, if I ring up for a cab, do I, how do I know it's yeah. not going to be old Bill? Yeah, no, I agree. You know? Yeah, I agree. I mean, people, people criticise the, the, the um, uh, disclosure of tactics, mm. but the fact is if somebody's listening to this mm. and they would have used that as a tactic, mm. then we're narrowing their options. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely right. Yeah. It is, you know, it goes with that. I'm not sure that it's still going. Maybe it does still go on. But, yeah, it worked fantastic well. And I took Operation Welling up there, effectively. Like we, we did an operation over 38 weeks. We had two weeks off of Christmas. Um, so we did two weeks. Each division said, you do the intel for us. You get us your drug dealers you want targeted. I'll, I'll bring test purchases and we'll do mm. it. And uh, we... It's a great tactic. 270 arrests yeah. over 38 weeks. Great In tactic. budget as well. It was, it was really good. And oh, there, was a, there was a great... We, we, what happened was in the, you'll, you'll probably remember, Paul, in, in the, about that time, about 98, 99 maybe, the National Crime Squad was formed from the regional yeah. crime squads. So we did have a regional technical support unit at Wakefield. And as soon as the regional became the national, they were supporting the National Crime Squad. And the other forces in the region couldn't get their help. Because we had our own, so we were the biggest force in the northeast region. All of a sudden, we started getting requests from other smaller forces. Yeah. Saying, Can you help us with this? Can you help us with that? And where I could have said, a lot of it, probably 50% of it, was professional standards type work. Yeah. Um, and I did quite a lot of getting involved in that while I was there. And, uh, yeah, the uh, I had a phone call from my... Um, opposite number in Cleveland police who said we've got a problem with a pub just near Middlesbrough I think somewhere um, flat roof pub you know you know, the sort of thing yeah says and they're selling all sorts of stuff in there and we can't get near them they make us every time and I had this guy called um, Trevor Taylor who was, was my lorry theft man but he was also a level one undercover officer right and he looked he had out here beard he was a good guy but very clever tactically for this so I said, what are we going to do then, Sarah? And he thought about it. He says, tell you what, boss, we're going to have hen night. I said, what? He says, we're going to have a hen night. <laughs> he says, you know those young officers you used for doing the Operation Rockwood, which was the, like, well in the drug ones? Yeah. He says, get half a dozen, eight of those. So I picked eight of them, all female under 30. Yep. And the instruction was that they were to parade at Wakefield headquarters on Saturday night at 7.30pm, dressed as if they were going for a night out, and that I would reimburse up to three alcoholic drinks they'd had before they came. Brilliant. So basically, I'm then going in there this, this Saturday evening, doing a briefing to these sort of giggly, <laughs> giggly 20-something girls who've been drinking. 
So I explained what it was, and Sam said, oh, yeah, I'll be the bride. So we gave her the veil and the L plates and all this sort of thing. And, and Trevor got a force minibus up, you know, a marked minibus. I didn't go. I just did the briefing. Trevor drove him up there, goes to this pub. They all get out. They, obviously, we've done the research. We found the name of the nightclub where they say they're going afterwards and blah, 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 yeah. blah. They go in there, start talking, and because you can imagine the blokes in the pub, they've got this. All over them. All over them. They're playing pool with them and throwing darts and... Anyone sort us out? Sort of, what do you want? Well, what have you got? And all buy, all go out that door. Cleveland police come in that door. Done. Rest of them all. Yeah. It is, it's a great Fantastic tactic. tactic. I'm sure they... I'm, oh, please, God, I hope they still use it. I'm sure they do. So, yeah, that was that. Then I got divorced, sadly. I spoke with my wife and had to come back to the south, uh, rattling around a big house in Yorkshire on my own. Um, and... I, but yeah, so I came back, Matt wouldn't have me. No, they wouldn't have me. They didn't have space for me. Didn't want a DC, didn't want any DCIs still. So I applied for Surrey and I had to go and do the, yeah. I've been DCI for four years at this point, done division and force intelligence. And I had to go and do the assessment centre with all the DIs and inspectors. I passed it and they gave me a job. Um, I worked for six months with, with, with Mark Rowley on and off doing the implementation of national intelligence model, which was interesting, made me, gave me a lot of respect for him, you know, and... and, and uh, He's having it tough at the moment. Tough, tough gig, you know, it's a tough gig. Um, I think to his credit, he could have just said no, couldn't he, you know? He oh, did, yeah, he, didn't he could. didn't need to do it. He, he did could. It. And, I, and I don't think with Mark it's for... I don't think it's for self-aggrandisement or, you know, because he wants to say, oh, I was commissioner. I think he generally wants to help and yeah. wants to do the best job he can. But, but I think in I think that Dame Cressida yeah. was in the same boat. I mm. think she wanted to help. I Different think, way, but yeah, absolutely. But, you know, the night of the long knives and, yeah, she might have made some wrong decisions around her senior management. Um, but she was all about policing. She was, and... and she, I mean, I'll never forget the help she gave me on, on um, and, and Lynn Owens, who's now the, the, the yep. Deputy Commissioner on Minstead, you know. So, yeah, I mean, they, they were, but, yeah, so I did that. I, rest of the time, I really didn't like being in Surrey. It wasn't very busy. So how long were you there for? Two years. And then back to the Met? Back to the Met, yeah. I was, we did this one of these, um, they called them critical incident <clears throat> weekends. Yeah. Um, and I did that, and it was run by uh, Bill Griffiths, who was DAC in the Met, and... Funny there's a guy called George Roden who played like the Neville Lawrence character in it, if you like. And George was a DI in the Met. He was chairman of the Met BPA. Well, back in about 1976-1977 in Enfield, George was the butchery boy when I was the deli boy at the co-op. Oh wow! We were Saturday boys together. We liked the same sort of music and all this sort of thing. So we knew each other quite well. And George and I were sitting up talking. I hadn't seen him for some time. You know, nice guy. And Bill Bill Griffiths had this habit of getting a getting his guitar and some song sheets out and you sit in the bar singing and yeah, it was good fun and he eventually sort of said well, what are you doing Mr. Brown sorry I said the Met wouldn't have me and he said well we'll write me a letter so I did and I, I just started doing the deep cut reinvestigation then. oh yeah the suicide yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, so I sort of bailed out on that but I, I, I was I was so unhappy there working there that it was just and it was like coming home to don't really go back to your parents when you've been away from home, you know, the cutlery is the same, the crockery yeah. and the smell. And, um, well, I'll tell you about the interview. I, I was interviewed by, um, <coughs> by a superintendent called John Sweeney, who I kind of knew. He was North London. I knew him more because he was an East Hearts football referee. Right. Uh, and um, a really, really lovely guy. He did, I think he's really unwell now, so I've heard. I don't know. But 
he did a lot of service, 35 years or so. He was the SIO for Keith Blakelock. Oh, was he? I really wanted to sort of try and sell it before he retired. So but anyway, he was superintendent on Trident. And what I'd been advised by somebody, I won't name who, to apply to say I want to be an SIO on Trident. They said, because they can't get anyone to do that, so you're guaranteed to get, get a job sort of thing. Okay. So I had this interview, funnily enough, at Putney at the Jubilee House where I ended up working. And uh, John said to me, what's your average workload a year as an SIO in Surrey? I said, well, it was 0.8 of a case a year, but um, they've cut the numbers now, so it's going to be about 1.2, they reckon. He said, well, on Trident, your workload is like to be something like 20 cases a year. I said, right. He said, well, are you happy with that? You know, do you think you'd be able to cope with that change in your workload? I said, more than happy with it, sir. I said, I'd absolutely love it. I said, I think it's, it's just absolutely perfect. He said, why do you say that? I said, well, because if you've only got 0.8 of a job a year and you mess it up, you've got no excuse. If you've got 20, you've got every excuse in the world. <laughs> <laughs> and he laughed like that. And he, said, <laughs> and he phoned me up later that night. In fact, I was on call. We were doing um, Anthony Miela, the like, M25 rapist. Who yeah. did, he's dead now as well. Um, we had a case that we thought we, like, we did relate to that in, in, in Epsom. And uh, I was up on that and I was at Epsom Police Station. And uh, got a phone call. <laughs> so he says, that answer about the workload. He said, did you really mean that? I said, no, I was just being a bit flippant. I said, uh-huh. but I would like to be a bit busier. He said, well, yeah, you don't have to be that busy, though, do you? He said, would you fancy, he said, do you really want to try it, or would you rather just be on an ordinary murder squad? I said, right, well, I'd rather really be on an ordinary murder squad. But he says, oh, that's right. And he says, that's what I write out for. And that's how. And that's how you ended that's up That's how I ended up going back to, to the Met. And I went back. So I went back in. September 2002, so I'd done two years and two months in Surrey. Uh, and they had space to be as necessary from the January, from the following January. But um, Bill Griffiths said, we could actually use you on the murder review group for a couple of months to fill in before then if you want to come back sooner. So I said, well, yeah, I'll do that because you'll kind of get me back into the swing of the Met, if you like, without being yeah. you know, hands-on. Um, and I quite enjoyed that. You know, the first first thing we did was a review of the MIR in um the Soul Murders. Which oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Thing to do that I got involved in. And various other sort of met ones. Um, and I always had a big thing about uh, the review group that they they were too concerned with arse covering. They were too concerned with making sure that the the Holmes account had all the I's dotted and T's crossed. Yes. Yeah. And actually less concerned about trying to find investigative opportunities to, mm. to do it. But they still like it. And funnily enough, the just before I retired, about well, we we just nicked, we just nicked um, Grant on Minstead, so I was looking for something else to do, and they had a temporary superintendent role in the murder review group, and I went along to the interview, got interviewed for it. Um, actually, no, it's just before we nicked him. It's yes, fifth November. I remember now, yeah, just before we nicked him, and I went along to the interview, and it was the stage where I was doing night duty looking for him on the surveillance and doing my day job. And I had to sit interview for a job. I went along, another guy from my special course, Steve Lovelock, was the chief super that interviewed me. And I gave him that and said, that's what I think my focus should be. If I didn't get the job, somebody else did. And funnily enough, I was talking to a very senior officer at, when I got my commendation for Levi and Levi job, that was the last day's duty I ever did. Oh, was it? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and uh, 10th of December, 2010. So I had leave to take up until my 30 years. Um, and I was talking to one of the DACs and she said, 
why you, you shouldn't be retired? And Krista said that. She said, well, I understand it's your last day. Yeah, why are you retiring? Well, because I've not really got much else to do at the moment. Yeah, I haven't got a team. I'm just waiting for Mincy to go to court and I'm bored stiff. We well, should have told us. I said, upset. Said, and I applied for the job at the murder review group and people didn't like my idea thinking it should be more focused on investigations and less on administration. Well, that's exactly what, you know, that's exactly how it should be. That's exactly, why, why didn't you get the job? Said, well, look at me, I didn't get the job, you know. Um, so, yeah, so I sort of powered out. But yeah, that's what I did when I first went back to the Met and then I get, went to Barnes the murder squad and did that, you know, with the same team from two, January 2003 until June 2009. So, so how did you get, how did the Met, the murder of Millie Dowler, which yeah. is well documented and, you yeah. know, there's, there's lots out there, but how did you get involved in that from the Met? What, because it was a Surrey job, wasn't it? Yeah, it, it? was. It always was a Surrey job. Well, um, it actually happened. I was down there only last week at a dog show, Kempton Park. Near Kempton Park Racecourse, there's a BP garage, and it was my birthday. And I was in the car looking at Levi Belfield's. We'd just identified him as being our suspect for murdering Emily Delagrange. Right. And we were out looking for his van. And I've got his intelligence printout, which is about two and a half inches thick. And I've got it in the car. And Richard Ambrose, my DI, one of my DIs on that team, on that job, was paying for the petrol and getting the coffees in, in the garage. And I was looking. I lived there. And I saw that he lived in Wharton on Thames. Well, Wharton on Thames is where we'd found Emily's phone. It's where we. Right. Track that to where where we no, we hadn't found the phone. Phone switched off there. We'd found other property of hers in the river. So there was a connection between that. And so I looked at them. I didn't know where this address was in Walton on Thames. So I got my Met A to Z and looked in that, and it covered sort of around the edges as well, to see how close this place he used to live at was to the river where he'd thrown Emily's belongings. Right. And the answer was it wasn't. It was the other side of town. But because I'd been in Surrey at the time, I never involved in Millie Dowler at all. I was doing deep cut, but I'd been in Surrey and knew that much about it. And I thought, oh, bloody hell, where he lived is like 20 yards from where she was last seen. Mm. And it's check, we checked the date. Oh, God, at the time that she was as well. And I still had, I say you keep numbers in your phone, don't you? I still had Brian Marjoram, who was the DI acting DCI, who was on... Operation Ruby, the Millie Dowler case, said, I had his number in my phone from when I was in Surrey. So I phoned him up. It was about nine o'clock at night. And said, Do I want to tell you, let me tell you a story, sort of thing. He told him about <laughs> Levi Burford, told him what I'd found. And he, I'd never forget what he said. So, you know, it's an old phrase, but it's the time I heard it that I remember it. He said, God, the hair's standing up on my neck now. Mm. And then, I mean, if you've seen the drama and read the book, it, it's, it was absolutely true what happened. I went along to try and convince Surrey. The Surrey superintendent, who was a lovely guy, and given you know, my then wife worked for Surrey Police, she was their head of intelligence, or she's now the head of intelligence for Surrey and Sussex. Um, and she was the principal analyst or whatever for Surrey at the time. And I knew Steve through that, and I just couldn't understand why they were just blanking. Oh, yeah, well, we've got our own suspect, Colin, you know, and uh, yeah, we, we might get around to looking at this manuals, but thank you very much for coming. and. And I deliberately wound him up. I deliberately said, right, okay, Steve, I, you know, 
What I don't understand is we all coppers here, and I don't understand why a copper like you doesn't want to solve it. And of course, that's absolute, oh, yeah. absolute red rag to a ball. And he's sort of staring, yeah, that's monstrous, that's outright. And the second he did that, exactly as it was on the on the, on the Dharma, my mobile rings, it's the forensic manager, so I think, shit, we found something. You know, so I, sorry, I've got to take this. I leave poor Joe Brunt. Poor Brunt, he's sitting there, <laughs> superintendent, going apoplectic at her and jabbing down the, you know, his finger down at her. And I had this, you know, only about a 30 second, one minute phone call with the forensic manager. Went back in from the corridor to the office and Joe's sitting there on her own. I said, boy, thank God. I said, I think the meeting's over. <laughs> I said, oh, shit, what have you done now? You know, so I go home and Louise's at home and uh, I, she said, oh, um, the funny thing, Steve Scott's asked me for your, texted me and asked me for your phone number. I said, oh, okay, no worries. Yeah, good, you give it to him, yeah. And he phoned me up and he said, reflecting on what you said today, I think we should look at him. And it was like, it's like the night while I was at home. Not on the plane like it happened in the in the in the drama, um, and you know to their credit, they they got their teeth stuck into him and they did the they did the right thing. It took, they were really really tenacious. I you know I'm not always sorry, police's greatest fans, but they they stuck at that. They didn't charge him until eight years after her body was found. Yeah, you know, I'd retired by the time we went to court for that. Had you really? Yeah. And funnily enough, one of the newspapers, um, a mutual friend of ours, maybe. We're going to get me a press pass to sit and cover it for them. But I spoke to Brian Altman, who was prosecuting me, because yeah, I yeah. know Brian very well from our cases we've, he's done with us. I said, what do you think? He said, I think it'll be a circus because you'll wind Belfield up if you're there. I said, yeah, that's why I asked you first. So I didn't do it. But, yeah, that was – and, you know, I mean, there were all things around that that there were some things that were done badly and there were some things that were done well, you know, and – I think the big issue is, is if you look at things like Soham, if you look at things like that, and, you know, Essex, what's Essex, 3,000, 3,500 cops? Or yeah, something? Just yeah. Under, yeah, just yeah. under, yeah. Um, you know, Surrey's about the same, bit smaller. A bit smaller, well, a lot smaller, actually. Well, yeah, 1,800? 1.9 million members of the public live there. Mm. Yeah, so... And then Cambridge with Holly and Jessica. Yeah. Soham murders, you know, things like... We went up there to support that. You, yeah, but that's, yeah. That's, that's, that's the problem, is you don't get... You don't get the depth of exposure to things that people, you haven't got that big body of people that Met have got to throw loads of resources no. in. And something like a high profile Cut A plus murder investigation is hugely resource intensive. Oh, it is huge. And one of the reasons it's so hugely resource intensive is because the public want to help. Yeah. And every time they want to help, they create at least one, if not several, actions that cops are going to do. Well, we, we, we've know? done the, the recent work with Revelation around um, Daniel Jones, and I was yeah. on, I was on the Daniel yeah. Jones inquiry. That was yeah. enormous. Yeah. I mean, we still haven't recovered a body, blah, blah. Yeah. But it's huge, and, and it is, I mean, we were very lucky because we were well-staffed at the time, and I think it's because we were on, I was on there at the... Um, the initial stages, money was no object. So if it was, yeah. we, we flew people to South Africa, we went off yeah, to yeah. the FBI, yeah. you know, so it was, but you're quite right. We, we, but we adopted the systems that the Metropolitan Police were running because mm. it had been tried and tested. But you, yeah, I think there's a, there's a, there's always a, there's always a thing. Nobody wants to go back to the, oh Christ, we're, you know, calling the yard as it was pre amalgamations yeah. in the yeah, yeah. 60s and 70s where you've got tiny, you know, South End Borough would have been your, yeah, absolutely. White yeah, yeah, yeah. Stuff, yeah. Um, yeah, Huddersfield Borough in West Yorkshire. 
was so it's great for the chief super at Huddersfield now because well, they probably sold it like most police stations, but at the time it was like the chief constable's office, so he had a little flat there with a shower and stuff like that, just yeah. because it was a little tiny borough police force. Um, and they had no hope of doing an investigation like that. So they'd always called in the yard, and that's where the bag man comes from because it's the, the bag carrier thing is, is the, you know, the yeah. superintendent and the bag carrier. Um, and nobody wants to go back to that. And I said, what I, what I gather, it didn't matter in West Yorkshire because they were a big enough force to absorb it, you know. But Surrey, we're not, I want to say they're too proud to because they got help in doing the searching and stuff like that. But the actual detecting, they didn't. And Craig Denholm was the, was the head of CID then, ex-Met himself. And he, you know, he put a paper up, I think, to NCS saying, is there an NCS role in this? Because I think what he thought was, would that take it away from this stigma of saying we're calling the Met in if it was a national thing and you've got people yeah. from all over? Um, but I still think that's, because I didn't have the best of time in Surrey Police, I think part of part of the difficulty was they didn't like it that the Met found Millie Dowell's killer. And worse than that, it wasn't just a Met, it was me and the Met, you know? Yeah. And it's and it's something that I find a little bit of an anathema because I was I'm always so task focused, it's untrue. Yeah. I, I, I don't really care about I don't I don't do politic office politics at all. Um, you know, I found my niche, I found something that I really like doing and I did it the best I could for as long as I could, essentially. Um and I'd get, you know, the last superintendent I had that sent me across to do Minstead. I'm not sure, I'm sure in his mind was, we really think you're so bloody clever. Go and, go and have a go at this. This will bring you down a peg or two. And we got lucky. But, but you know, he'd, he'd literally say to me, you weren't at the health and safety meeting today. Mm-hmm. So, no, he said, bless you, you haven't been at the health and safety meeting for the last six meetings. So I've been busy investigating murders, sir. Yeah, but you have to go to this. And he's right. I mean, you know, in a yeah, process time, he's right. But I would say, well, explain to me exactly how going to any one of those meetings would make me more likely to serve one of my murders, and I'd probably turn up. Yeah, you know, and and and, and I'm not saying that's big or clever, and I'm not saying that it was the best thing for me personally because it probably wasn't. But I think it was the best thing. But with doing serve, the job that was before and us, serve the, the victim, serve the victims, and I think serve my team. Yeah, I think actually the the attitude that I had, I didn't. You know, I always said it's it's my my job is to argue with them up there. Your job is to go down yeah. and serve the murder, and I would kind of insulate them from all that sort of crap that I that I could. And as long as they were doing what they needed to do, then that was okay. You know, and I do that. And, and you know, I can't name names. So I've got to be very careful. I might even not name not name the gender because then it will take it even more away. Because I had a lot of women. I, I had thirteen women on my team, which I actually think. I mean, my personal view is it doesn't matter. And my personal view is, in some cases, in many cases, they're better detectives than men. I agree. But it would happen that the email would come out saying these are people are selected and everybody else would get it first before me, it seemed. And there'd always be loads of women left on because nobody seemed to... But I, when I ran an office... I was fine. Absolutely fine. If I had a team of women on there, I knew they'd get the work done yeah. because the, the blokes are magpies. They yeah. look at the bright and shiny. They they won't finish the job that they've got in hand. Yeah. They'll move on to the next yeah. one. They'll do a bloody good job, yeah. but they'll leave a 
bit untouched and therefore mm. someone else's and one of the girls would end up that, that's not misogynistic that's the fact yeah. how did you feel I mean we'll, we'll come on to the, the, the Night Stalker and, and what have you but how did you feel when you turned that television on because you, you're published you've written books and, and what have you mm. how did you feel when you turned the television on and you saw Martin Clunes playing Colin Sutton because I've got to say I I haven't met Martin Clunes but I've met you and I've watched the I've watched the programme and he obviously spent a long time watching you. He didn't spend a long time. He did spend time. Um, he probably before the first one, we spent about, I don't know, probably about eight hours in each other's company. Right. Um, he's, he's a really fine actor. Oh, yeah, he is. Yeah, and yeah I, absolutely. I people, yeah, I say to him, myself, I say, look, you know, you'll always be Gary Strang from Men Behaving Badly to me. Yeah. You know, and it is funny. Um, but he... Yeah, he picked up, and the only thing, and he, he solved it. I mean, you know, feedback or whatever. We talked about it, obviously. Um, the second one, he was better at it because he wasn't so serious. And I said that's ironic because you're known as a yeah for acting comedy, not just as a comedy actor. But yeah, yeah. I said you know, and you're playing it too. You played it too straight. I'm not that serious. I'm not that straight. No things, but. He, he, he and he took that on board and he did a fantastic job in the second one. But yeah, he, yeah, yeah. my friends are family say, I mean, he's 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 a good guy. He's um, yeah, he's he's, he's a good actor. And, he's and, a good actor. But he, he did play you well, mate. He's, yeah, he did. He did. So I'll tell you, I'll tell you the Mark Martin Clune story. He won't mind because I told him I was going to tell everybody I ever knew this. But this is this is when we did Night Stalker. So they've involved me with every part of it. Yeah, I spoke to somebody recently who's also written a book loosely connected with crime um, as a public servant shall we say and his experience was that he wrote the book he got the check and then he saw it on the telly and mine was you know I was involved in writing the, the script the certain scenes certainly in the second one I've written the whole scenes myself um, I was there for shooting not every day but a lot of it I did briefings with the actors beforehand I spent a lot of time Brilliant. in the art department to get it looking right because we, we set out, Ed Whitmore said, and I, when we started, he said, we are going to make this the most authentic Met Police murder squad drama that's been made. And I think we did. Yeah. I really think we did. Um, but yeah, anyway, so we, we, so I know we, we go to, we go on to, um, Good Morning Britain, they, the Night Stalker one's coming out. And we meet in the green room there and he said, oh, God, who's on stage? Suzanne and, uh, Richard Madeley. And I'd worked with Suzanne Reed doing the, because I used to now do a documentary after the drama sort of thing, the real... Yeah, 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 yeah. It's where the real Manhunter title came from, sort of. So, um, so it's like, that's good. Yeah, I've not seen Richard for many years and blah, blah, blah. So we go on, we do it, and we, we do our talk, and it's, it all goes fine and swinging. Now, that was the weekend. You're a football fan. You we understand this. That was the weekend that Jimmy Greaves died. Yeah. And the, the great Jimmy the great Jimmy the West Ham West player, West Ham player <laughs> after he after he learnt his craft at Tottenham. <laughs> yeah, um, and I saw a player. You might be just that little bit younger than me. Do you see him play? I I, you no, I never done. saw him play. No, but uh, he, I, I met him a few times because he lived near me. Right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Brentwood was he? Uh, Braintree. Out Braintree. That way. Right. Yeah. 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 So anyway, but so Jimmy Greaves had died, and the next item on Good Morning Britain after us was about Jimmy Greaves having died right. on the weekend. It was a Monday, and they've got a guest. And as Martin and I, I'm in front, Martin's behind me, we're walking out through the double doors of the studio, in comes the next guest, they're on a commercial break, and the next guest is Paul Gascoigne. Right. Right? And I see him, and I think, ooh. So I said, Gasser. He goes, oh, hello, mate. You know, I said, oh, big 
top season ticket holder, big fan, mate, you're a legend, you know, shaking, shaking his head, look, good to see you looking well, all this thing. And he does that thing where he's, yeah, I'm, I'm okay talking to you because, you know, I've had this for years, but actually there's someone behind you who's quite famous I'd like to talk to. And he goes, Martin Clunes. <laughs> <See, laughs> so Martin, Martin sort of goes, oh, hello, you know, like that. Uh-huh. And Big Gazza comes and he goes, oh, Martin you're a legend, man, I mean, behaving badly, and, you know, and all this shaking it. So we go back out. He goes into his bit. We go back out. There's a woman in, I think it's Gazza's manager, she's in the green room, but Martin goes in there, picking our bags up and stuff. And uh, I said, Colin, said, who, who was that Scotsman I just shook hands <laughs> Oh, brilliant. So, like, I said, because if it's got four legs and fur, a bit like my wife, he's fine. Yeah, Martin, but football's a lot of thing. So I said, it's Gazza, Paul Gascoigne, Martin. Paul Gascoigne, Gazza, you know. <laughs> and he's thinking, and he said, oh, he says, I know. He said, the, the one that took the fishing rods and fried chicken to Raoul Moat. I said, well, yeah, he did, but that's not, <laughs> <laughs> that's that's not really what he's famous for. I was behind the goal. We were, we were moonlighting at the time um, in the Euro '96. Oh, for the and we were we, chair, we were working. Chair. We were doing stewarding there. There were a load of Essex coppers, and there was right. a, a guy that used to run it. And we'd go there. and We'd work on the halfway line. And when Gaza scored that goal, they were they were expecting problems, and we were behind the goal. We were actually oh, we'd right. gone the other side of the. And I was directly behind the goal when Gazza scored. That was absolutely it's an amazing goal, wasn't it? Yeah, he was not he, the best I've ever seen. Ricky Villa, nice day one car. I was there for that. Oh yeah, yeah. That was because my dad, as I said, worked. At, he knew everybody at the Spurs in that era, and um, and we had two season tickets. Well, that come through my my great uncle was the um, chauffeur for the. Mayor of Enfield for many, many, many oh, years. Right. And uh, somehow he got these two season tickets and they sort of stayed in the family. And um, I couldn't go to the first game, that cup final 81, because I was off and Bobby Sands was on his hunger strike and they oh. thought he was going to die and they cancelled all leave. Leave, yeah. And we were, I was sitting on a green bus in Whitehall listening to it on the radio because then it was a draw and the, the replay was on a Thursday. And so I've got... A mug over there, I've had printed with like the Teletext score on it, and my dad and I have got one each. Because it's one of those times, you know, I said earlier about how my dad and I got really close when I became an adult, sort of thing. Yeah. That was that season, we went to most, if not all, of the away cup matches. Um, and we went up, I mean, we went to Hillsborough for the semi final, which was when people ended up on the pitch because Leppings Lane got crowded. Yeah. If you remember, it was like a you know, the signs weren't, weren't, weren't watched. Yeah, for, for here. And Dad, was, Dad had a seat. I had a standing ticket. I was sort of on my own. But um, And I was in training school then. And because he went to a replay, and that was at Highbury on the following, I think, Thursday night. And we won that 3-0. And a Friday was my final exam at the... It was either Wednesday or Thursday. I think it might have been a Thursday. Certainly the final replay was a Thursday. But it was just before my exam at training school. I said, I'm going to, I'm going to the Cup semi-final. So I went to that. And then we went... So I couldn't go to the actual game. We went to the semi and and uh, to the to the replay of the final. And we're sitting there watching it. I still go cold when I see it. They replay it a lot every year. That goal, and because I know, because it's like, you know, Dad's eighty whatever he is now, eighty four this year, and he's not as bright as he once was. He just bought an electric car, bless him. Is he? Yeah, <laughs> 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 not to go electric, you know, probably yeah, full yeah, size yeah. one. Um, but you know, they they were the sort of times when and and I 
bought him at Christmas, actually. I got a book that Steve Perriman, the Spurs captain, sort of endorsed. It's like a coffee table book of that cup run, 1989. Oh, really? I was able to say, look, do you remember going here? Do you remember going there? You know, and, and it was a time the exhaust fell off on the way to Hillsborough. Well, you see, he had an MG Midget. Went to Hillsborough and an MG Midget in 1981. Wow. And just stuff like that. And it's, it's things like that, isn't it, in your life that you... Oh, I, as, I, as you get old yeah. yourself and as your parents get very old, you know, you sort of think those were the times that stand out of memories that you've had with... Yeah. And you get reminded of it every year on the television. I think, yeah, that... that it makes you feel quite melancholy as well, because, I mean, adding the answer in the charts... yeah. Um, I yeah. bet you do. I mean, I'm, I'm a yeah. real trivia person. Yeah. And here's a question for you, and you'll know the answer to this. Cause it, so if it was Sunderland in 79... And it was Villa. I do, yeah. You know the answer to this. In 81, who was it in 80? Brooking. Yeah. 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 His brother was in the bet, wasn't he? Yeah, his brother and his totally. dad. His dad, oh, was, right. in, his dad mm. was a Met Copper as well. I, I, I met him at West Ham the other week. I was, yeah. I, he was, he's smashing, Here, brother. Here's a trivia from that 1981 Cup run. Do you know who the Spurs substitute was? No. Probably don't. A bloke called Gary Brook. Gary Brook, yeah. He went to Norwich in the end. And then, Gary Brook was the victim of my very first ever... Yellow card in football. Was he really? Yeah. <laughs> First time I got booked, he was, he was playing for Walton Forest. I played with him. Yeah. How funny is that? Yeah. So, and, uh, so I was we, about we, 14. We digress. Yeah. Um, <laughs> As I say, the, the, the Levi Belfield stuff is well documented and, yeah. and, the, and the great work there. And the same with um, the Night Stalker element. But I think it's fair to say, and, and, and you make it really, really clear that. You as a SIO, us as the bosses running these jobs, yeah. we're one of a huge team. And without that team that carry out the mm. the the background work, your analysts, yeah. without them, actually, crimes don't get solved. Yeah. As, as, a, as, a, as a governor, you don't walk out and put your hand on someone's shoulder and say, you nick my old beauty. You need to have that, that team. So... And I think that the, the analyst played a very important role in yeah in the night stalker. I, I had no choice but to be analyst friendly, obviously at the time. But I actually, you know, I believed in it, and and it's one of the sort of gigs I've done. I did for a number of years was was national analyst conference stuff like that because I think it's yeah it's 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 got a go on now. I mean, yeah, um, I always sort of say leadership's about getting the best allowing allowing the people you lead to do the do the best job they can. That's 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 the important thing, you know, and and facilitating that and making them want to do it, making people want to work for you, you know. I, I don't don't hate to go to sort of analogies with football all the time, but I will do. We were talking recently about the Spurs manager situation, and I said, you know, in the job, you'd, we'd all work for a governor that frightened us, but we worked a lot better with somebody who helped us. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think right. that's you know there the, are. Uh, Managers are managers, you know, and yeah, no, and, 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 and yeah, that was that was. I, I I saw people. I loved seeing people grow. I loved seeing even in uniform. You know, I loved seeing probationers come and come in with their first bodies and grow into grow into sort of efficient street police officers. You know, and equally, you know, yeah, there's, there's one of the one of the um, one of the family liaison officers who came to my team at, at Putney uh, was family liaison officer for one of the victims in the Belfield case. She's detective superintendent now. Brilliant. And I've loved to see it because she was always, you know, she was always bright and very capable. But to see someone grow like that is, 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 is 
yeah, it's, I think it's you know something that we you can lose in the in the the smell of cordite and the muck and bullet sort of thing, you know. But they're they're people, aren't they? They're people that you're leading, and they're people that are doing this. Ordinary people doing an extraordinary job. You know, people say that all the time. But, but it's that's, true. That, that's what they are. Yeah. You know, and, and you have to remember that. And you have to remember that because they're ordinary people, they've got ordinary people's foibles and faults and needs and desires and wants and, and all the other things. And one, one of the loveliest things I can think of, not loveliest, but one of the sort of most poignant things I can think of in terms of Belfield was the fact that we were working long hours when it started. Because you know, I've said this so many times, it was... We were living the drama for real, you know. How long have we got to these strikes again? Yeah. That was real. And it doesn't happen actually that often. It doesn't drama and fiction and books. But to live that for real is, is, is quite something. And we were working long hours. So I had, I had one day off in the first 63 um, of that investigation. That was when I moved house that day. <laughs> um, and we were doing long hours as well. And it's not, not just every day, but long hours each day. And yet I would still find time. I'd leave when we were at Barnes then, before we went to Putney in the early days of it. I'd leave Barnes, I don't know, eight o'clock-ish or something to go home maybe. And I think, oh, is there football on the radio? Yeah, it probably is. Okay, I'll go and, I'll go and sit up at Twickenham Green, drive around, move about, just give it a couple of hours, see if I can see this white van. And I did it, you know, most days. And you just do another couple of hours. And, and But I'd see other members of my team in their own car yeah. doing exactly the same thing. And we never mentioned it to each other because we'd have felt embarrassed. They'd yeah. have felt embarrassed, I'd have felt embarrassed because yeah, are, you, are you so mad you're doing all this and you're giving the job two hours of your time? But we were all, there half a dozen yeah, of doing it and we're doing it because we cared and we wanted to... Yeah. No, I'm with you. And that's, and that's when you sort of think, you contrast that, you contrast those people, those fantastic people that I had the absolute privilege of leading. Yeah. Carrick, and oh. Puzzle, you know, and and this is the and, thing. And though, people wonder why we get annoyed and why we feel betrayed. I, yeah, and and yeah. and the, but the thing is, these are two people, and I'm not saying there's not other people there, and I yeah. and I expect that at some point, you know, the, the police service will rid themselves of another load of people. Some will get found guilty. Some will yeah. get found not guilty. There'll be a whole. Yeah, but. If you look, there's 135,000 coppers in the UK. If you took a town of that size, 135,000, yeah. the percentages are very, very low when it comes to poor behaviour. Yeah. If you took a, you know, I don't know, a big culture, 170,000. The criminality in a town of 135,000 is far higher than a police service of 135. You look at the, what percentage of sitting MPs have got a criminal conviction? Oh, yeah. I saw something the other day, it's like 40%. It's ridiculous. That, yeah, I can't believe that's right. But, yeah, you, 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 you know, all, and, and, you know, all, all, all doctors aren't like... Harold Shipman. Shipman. No. Or, you know, um, and, and, and... And all look, scare, school caretakers aren't like Hunt, no, Huntley. No, exactly. You know, we, but, but, but you have to... It's not. It's not just about that. Is it? It's, there's, there's a whole agenda. There's the whole kind of yeah. We, we people hating on the police is not new. No, it's you know, been going we, on for a long time. We had. We had. It was a Brown Morris Marina, as I remember, because we had one as well in the police. But there was a Brown Morris Marina that was the Haringey Police Monitoring Group or something. It used to follow you around to cause in 1981 in Tottenham. 
but yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I watch it now on, on social media where you have these people going around doing audits. Yeah. What a load of old yeah. tosh. Yeah, it's just, you know, but it, it's just, it's always been the same. We, we, I think we were we were lucky in one sense that we didn't have to police in the age of social media mm. and, and phone cameras and everything like that. And that's not because it enabled us to get away with things, but it's just we didn't have the focus. We didn't have the, we weren't doing everything in a microscope. And, you know, I, I'm not, I wonder what it's like for the SIOs these days. I wonder how different it is. It probably is different. Oh, yeah, I'm sure it is. And, and you know, there are fewer of them and they've got fewer resources. I'm not sure how, yeah, basically, yeah, we we, t- we technically had a budget when I was doing it for forensics and things like that. It never really mattered. If you needed something done, you got it done. It was done. Basically, and I wonder if it's probably not like that now because nothing else is like that in the police now. No, it's not. But you see, another great thing that I remember from the documentary, the drama that you, it was your relationship with the press. Mm. Now, I always worked on the basis that we were doing the same job. Yeah. The fact is that we were doing it from a different position and they didn't have the rules that we had. had. So if they had information, it's better to work with them than against them. And, and the issues that have come out around um, yeah. in Lancashire... Yeah. It wouldn't have happened 20 years ago. No. Like that. Because somebody would have sat down, that SIO would have sat down with, with, with the key people from the press, the sort of crime editors, where we said, right, this is the score. This is what's happening. Don't go there. Please don't go there because that's going to cause us problems. But we'll... Yeah. Because it's what... I, I mean, it's all documented. I did 20, 28 separate meetings with journalists about Belford from the time he was charged to the time he stood trial. Well. Right? And I'd been given a tip by one journalist, a very senior journalist now, who's a friend of mine, who said, use them to say small, they can't they haven't got the time or the staff to go digging. So, so you can't control what they write, but you can <coughs> you can influence you can influence it. You can steer them. So my steer was, okay, this is what he's like, this is what we've done, this is where the skeleton in the cupboard is, but we've done this and this and this and this. Briefed them, and it went really well. And and as a result of that, I got asked. I was I was did a number of occasions. I opened with a presentation the course at Bramshill National Police Training Course for Media Management, as they called it, for um, divisional commanders and SIOs. Yeah, yeah. And one of the stunts I did in that was I had a uh, the first five pages of the Daily Mail that I'd scanned in, and I'd whited out all the crime stories. And literally, there was something about Margaret Beckett and foreign policy, because that's how long ago it was, and there was the weather forecast, and that was it. That was it. And my point was, look, if you don't engage, the Daily Mail does not get printed with five pages of white space. Somebody will fill that up. Now, do you want to be involved in what fills it up, or do you want to leave it to them to make up or to get from sources that you can't have any control over? And yeah, I sort of said, right, you know, Anyone heard the anyone heard the press um, media described as parasites? And one or two people sit down there. But who do you know level biology? Who knows what symbiosis is? Because that's what it is. It's not a parasitic relationship. It's symbiotic. We depend on them the same as they depend yeah. on us. And if we do that, then everything's fine. And you know, Elfton and 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 um, the Filkin inquiry were were horrible because you, you 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 found that there were corrupt colleagues who were taking money. You know, nobody, no journalist ever offered me anything no. more than a glass of wine, you know, occasionally. 
Um, and and they knew that if they had have done, they'd have just been. I'm not talking to you. You know, that's yeah. not how we work. But if you look at those cases, and there were very few of them actually came to yeah. to, to to conviction, and those that did were appealed. Um, they weren't targeting SIOs. They were targeting PCs, yeah. DCs, who somehow had access to that information, who were giving, you know, who, who were, um, because when you're doing that job and you're that sort of high profile about it, and you are, like it or not, then, yeah. you know, you can't, there's no way you'd, you'd get yourself in that position. And the stupid thing is, um, I always have people talk to me about, News the world because obviously the, there was this thing with the news the world where they found out that we were we were had Belford on yeah. surveillance <clears throat> and actually caused us real problems because we couldn't bring the date of the arrest forward prosaically because it would have cost too much because we'd have had Sunday working and leave weekly leaves and cancelled leaves and yep. double money and all that sort of thing and so we had to do a deal in the end where we said to them come along and you can have the story when, when he's convicted and they publish it next week, but he was nicked by it and they just reneged on it. But I wanted to know, as I subsequently became more friendly with journalists as a result of that case, if you like, of yep. covering the case, I wanted to know what that happened because as we were watching something on television the other day, um, I don't know if you've ever seen this, Grace, the, the um, Peter James thing mm. with John Simpson, and they got a mole, basically. Basically, their local reporter from the... Brighton Argus, so he's turning up all the time. It turns out they bugged me, so it's Carl. But, but I was. Oh, he's watching now. I was, oh, sorry, yes. <laughs> spoiler alert. Sorry. Um, and I said to him, you know, I said, you've no idea how corrosive that is of a team. If you think somebody on your team oh. is leaking shit, you know, it really is. And so I wanted to know. And the way that that about Belfield got leaked and with all the ramifications that that could have had on that investigation, on that really, really important investigation for the Metropolitan Police, was a very senior officer talking to a journalist, having a lunch, a female journalist, perhaps half his age, wanting to show how powerful and how clever and how he knows about things. Ingratiate himself. That's how it happened. I don't think it was even that. I don't think it was even for a story. It was just to, was just to show you, yeah, because I, I, I know I know everything that's going on, don't I? You know. Did you know that there? And that's how that came got, out. got out. It's fascinating because, you know, we've got, we've got a number of mutual friends in that world yeah. now. And, um, and, you know, there are some huge scars after that issue where all the reporters are arrested. Yeah. And... Necessity and proportionality is a byword in policing, and I'm not sure that they were necessary or proportionate. I, I, I had one of my old team from Belfield team, proper good detective, was roped into helping them for one, and they, I think it was an army officer they went to arrest who'd been quite a senior army officer who'd do a relatively senior army officer who'd been involved in it. They went to arrest him at his place down in Salisbury or somewhere like that, and he said one of these detectives, branch detectives from professional standards or DPS or whatever, there's a, one of these spell spelling computers that kids use to speak their, speak it back to them, yeah? He said, why are you seizing that? He said, well, we're told, told to seize every digital device. Oh, dear, our Lord. You know, and you just think... <laughs> you real? I mean, yeah, exactly, exactly that. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's... The, 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 the pro big problem I have with it, the biggest problem, the biggest effect of that and of the Filkin report and so forth is that... Police have stopped, to a large degree, engaging with the media and 
as a result, we now have a new generation of journalists that have come in over the last 10 years whose default position is to criticise. Yeah. And when they criticise, nobody argues back. Right. No. Nobody explains they're wrong. You get a group think. Yeah, I don't know. Did you see Did you see a thing that was doing around social media about it? There's a BBC journalist that interviewed Elon Musk. Oh, yeah, I watched it. Yeah. And he said, well, yeah, because now since you've been in charge, Twitter's full of hateful conduct, isn't it? Well, give me an example. Well, no, well, it just is. Yeah, but okay, if it yeah. is, then give me an example. And actually what it turns out is that individual journalist hasn't done any research or doesn't know of any instance himself. He's saying, oh, well, the Internet Watch Foundation, it wasn't them, but it was some organisation, has said that it was. And it just becomes this group think that, Everybody says, so it must be true. Yeah. Everybody in my circles, in my bubble, in my echo chamber says that that's the case, so it must be true. And that's the kind of situation we're in about policing. Our default position is to say, well, yeah, they're all racist, misogynist, institutionally, whatever. Mark Rowley wouldn't even say it was institutional. He must use a different word. <sighs> Why? You know, what, what difference it makes? What's the semantics make? But... Yeah, they're all saying this is the case. This is, this is, everyone knows it. But then if you were to go to, in the same way to each of those individuals and say, okay, what examples have you come across of metropolitan police officers being misogynistic or racist or, you know, and then you get one of my big bugbears is this thing. Every time you see it, you see people saying black people in London are, insert large figure here, seven times, nine times, 13 yeah. times, more likely to be stopped than white people. Okay. When you actually look, there was a study done, it needs repeating, by the Home Office in 2000, okay? The number of black people compared to the number of white people that are stopped by the Metropolitan Police is proportionate, almost exactly, to the number of them on the streets at the time when stops are carried out, right? Yeah. In fact, it shows a very, that, that report showed a very slight bias towards stopping white people more often than black people, but only just, okay? And it's about the available people to be searched. And what they're doing, what everyone does, is say, well, okay, the population of London is X percentage white, X percentage black, X percentage brown. These are the stop and search figures, therefore it's a racist endeavour. Okay? So I've tried to explain it like this. Okay, if, if we had somebody said, drivers deliberately run over cats but not dogs, you'd say, what? Yeah? Well, actually, cats are more likely to get run over because most dogs are kept indoors. Yes, they are. And all cats are allowed to roam the streets. So the dogs aren't out there to be run over, the cats are. Wise words. That's the situation. And then what's made me really angry this week is that the reverse, when you're talking um, about this sort of percentage-wise, with this stuff that's been going on about grooming gangs and that's been, you know, yeah. Home Secretary's put into the news about that, they say, oh, well, yeah, but there's a Home Office report that says that actually the um, most groomers are white. Most most groomers and, and pe people convicted of paedophile grooming gangs are white. Yes, they are, because actually we're only 3% Asian. Yes. Brown in this country. Yeah. And the majority is still white. And that's why most of them are. So how come you want to use the percentage and proportions of each ethnic uh, group in the population when you're talking about stop and search, but when you're talking about grooming and paedophile gangs and the rape of young girls, you don't then want to say, 
well, actually, yes, they are most white, but there are only 3% Asian in the population, and yet they are. Yeah, no, I, you I, know? I, I, I And, and it's, it's, it's just this whole manipulation of things to say what people wanted to say rather than looking at the truth, just what the objective truth is. And again, social media, the echo chamber that is Twitter, you know, it will just get repeated and repeated and repeated. And we go say to them, people, BBC journalists, in inverted commas, will repeat stuff they've read on Twitter as absolute as gospel fact. fact. Yeah. yeah, and it's factually incorrect half the time. And the other thing is I don't think people realise if, if a journalist phones up a police station or pl- press office and says, we understand that this is happening, or we've got a story, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. If the if the police don't come back and say, no, that's not the truth, yeah. the story is stood up and they will publish it as the truth. So the police are... There, you know, they should be coming forward and saying this is what the real, yeah. real things very, are. Very few do, but they don't. I just wish that. And there are some chief officers that come out, and Nick Adley, particular yeah. from from Northamptonshire. Yeah. But, but you know, there's nobody that will come out and say no, this isn't right. Mm. I mean, the Home Secretary is stronger now than I think she's ever been. I think yeah. she's more on side of law, law and yeah. order. Yeah. Um, but nobody ever says, no, you're wrong, Home Secretary. Or if they do, they don't do it in public. Mm. So you're, you're on the television a lot. I mean, you're... Um, yeah, a micro star. A micro star, <laughs> yeah, you know. <clears throat> but it's good and it's good stuff and I've, I've, I've yeah. had the pleasure of working with you. Yeah. And the, the great team at Revelation. Yeah. But what happens next, you know, with, with Colin Sun? Where, where... I don't know. I, I really don't know. I, I don't... You know, I, I I didn't plan any of this. When I first retired, the first job I had, no time, I was delivering flowers. Yeah. For some florists, three florist shops in Surrey that was just there, eight quid now, minimum wage, wherever it was then. And it was great. I had the radio on, no stress. People were happy to see me. You know, all the things you don't get in the police. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, and then... But I, I always had this idea of writing a book about the Belford investigation just because I thought... Nobody would ever know what amazing people they were, that team that I you say had yeah. the privilege to lead. And so that's why I did it. And that's all rather kind of snowballed. And, and you know, I've met Ed Whitmore, and Ed was really instrumental in making me A, finish the book, and B, getting it to, to tell you his drama. We got nine million viewers twice, you know, in each, in each, um, each series of the of the of the drama, which got nominated for a BAFTA, for God's sakes, you know. <laughs> um, so my old uh, English teacher at Latimer, I'm not sure she'd have thought that I'd get nominated, be writing something that was nominated for a BAFTA, but there you go. And there we, you know, we're there. So we've done that. I, I've, I'm still, I'm, I'm, I'm still doing things with Revelation, doing more TV. I want to, I don't think it's right for me now to do punditry about crime. Certainly to, you know, unless it's something, something about cases I was involved in or I know about, yeah. maybe. But, you know, I must have had 30 odd, Approaches from different media outlets of broadcast and print about Nicola Bully. Oh yeah, I was with you on and, one of the days, and yeah. I just didn't want to add my no. two penneth to all the rubbish and 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 smoke and mirrors and flack and chaos that was was going around that case. Um, so I've kind of withdrawn that, and 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 there are you know, there's, I've been retired for twelve years now, so there are twelve years worth of SIOs and police officers who are more current than me. Who can do that? 
because you know, and I don't want to be. Okay, I won't know names, but you see it sometimes in the in the press, particularly. You know, somebody who retired in, you know, before you joined is still making comments. Oh, no. You know, uh, so you know, so I'm not doing that anymore. I'm, I'm writing another book. I've done. We've made two two films, two sort of documentary films or series that during last summer that have yet to air. Um, I'm doing another series of The Real Manhunter at the moment that we're just coming to the end of. That's kind of taken a, a bit of a turn because obviously I've run out of cases because even if you do it for nine years, you don't have three series worth of interesting cases. And that's how we've worked together, which yeah. is good, you know. And it seemed we did a bit of it in the second series where there's me talking to people like yourself who have been involved in cases yeah. and, and it seemed to work. And all I'm all I'm keen to do is to kind of reinforce the values we've got. What we're looking at is investigation and we're looking at the effects on victims. We're not glorifying or... The, the, the perpetrator. We don't talk about the perpetrator to any great degree. Um, there's, you know, there's sometimes some pressure from the broadcast. They want things like that done. For example, they wanted, they wanted us to do um, dozens in this series. And I just said, no, I'm not going to do that because I, I don't think that it fits our values, if you like. And, and actually, I'd rather maintain that and I'd rather not do it if that's all the sort of stuff we've got to do. I don't want to be like every other true crime documentary that's a bit sort of sensationist. I want to actually look at people like yourself who make it happen. And people it, it, yeah. like Linda um, oh, yeah. Jones, who, oh, who, you know... What a lady. Uh, I went along to the school the other week and... Um, oh, did you, St Clair's? To her tre- uh, tree. Yeah. Tree. It's quite good because the deputy head's got a big Tottenham Hotspur flag in his office. Oh, is he? Well, yeah. <laughs> so I quite enjoy going there. Um, yeah, so, so there's that. I've got an idea about one or two more things that I want to get involved in that are slightly different. I mean, Revelation have got some things for me to do. Um, I want to do some more podcasting. I want to do some more podcasting, not this sort of chatting stuff, but you probably know, you might know actually, but I did one um, during most of lockdown with a lady called Jo McSorley, who was an ex-Beeb um, journalist who got involved in Deep Cut, like yeah, yeah. I did in 2000. And it stuck with her like it stuck with me. And it was really successful and we really... You know, we actually found another murder or another death, rather, that I didn't know about as the SIO in Surrey and everything had been kept quiet about. And we we went and found this guy's family and we found out and they were like a Scottish um, army family, three three sons who all went in the army and their dad was in the army as well. And they just didn't like to make a fuss. But there were questions. um, Funny enough, one of them was Nessex... One of the brothers left the army and become an Essex PC. Oh, really? Hmm, South End. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, so I did that, and I, I thought it was quite a powerful, and and it was nice because it was we were doing it for Audible. It was done with a proper producer, yeah, yeah, sounding, yeah. you know, all the bells and whistles that you'd get, uh, and 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 you know they they paid. We were paid as 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 as, 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 presenters. Perfor- as performers and presenters yeah. and and investigators to a degree, rather than sort of. It being funded by the fact that it's a podcast and yeah, yeah. the way that most podcasts are funded um, because that was for, for them. Um, Jane's keen to work again. She's done another really good one, actually, not too recently about a um, Pan American who turned up in a COVID ward in Scotland who was a wanted murderer. Oh, yeah. So you know that, that story? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Listen to Jane's podcast. It's fantastic. It's so, and she's really good. So I've been in touch with her and she'd like to do something again with us. But I've got an idea and I don't know who to do it with or how to do it, but I've, 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 I want to tell the story, the cop story about Broadwater Farm. The fact is that I know, Revelation know, 
that going to broadcasters to say, we want to tell a story about what it was like to police board from the 1980s, ain't going to interest them. No, it's not. In the same way that Revelation can't, you've got Norval Roberts' book and that story about him. I know. trailblazing as, as the, you know... First black police, police officer in the Metropolitan Police. Yeah. Nobody will touch it as a TV program. Wrong sort of black man. But that can't be right, can it? Of course it's not right. it? That that's, cannot that's be right. That's the situation we're in. That's the situation we're but, in. But you see, what, what upsets me about this, that, yeah. and I will say this because they are, but they're honourable people at Revelation, there is nothing that they've touched that has undermined the police. No. And nothing that I do. You know, I, I don't. I don't. But do there becomes professional point. jealousies in some of these things. Oh yeah, but you get that all the time. But this, this, I'll, I'll tell you, tell you something that's interesting. When during lockdown, when lockdown happened, I won't, I won't sort of say. I'll try and make it as 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 oblique and as sort of vague as possible. But there was a television company who approached me to see if I'd be interested in assisting them because they wanted an SIO to assist them with the project they were doing, a broadcast project. Yeah. So I said, yeah, okay, it's interesting. I don't really do anything. It's lockdown, you know, I'm sitting at home writing a book, actually. Yeah, I'll do it. Okay, well, can you come on the Zoom and do a presentation and talk to you? Yeah, I'll talk to you. So anyway, I do it. And this this is a production company, but a big production company. And they said, right, they're brilliant. You're, you're the man for the job. You're, you're what we want. You know, that's exactly what we want. So all we need to do is just get it okay by the broadcaster and we'll sort it out. Fine. Get an email from this woman about two weeks later saying, Sorry, we spoke to the broadcaster and despite our recommendation, they've said that they would rather have a female and or ethnic minority SAO on this occasion. Okay. So I replied, to, okay, fair enough. You know, I said, thanks for telling me. Um, it's a tough gig being an old white man in TV at the moment. I never got replied to that. But it's, the point is, it's not actually that's the attitude they take. It's the fact that they're entirely comfortable in emailing that to me and telling me that. Because... It would have been easier to say, I'm really sorry. So we could say someone better. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, they did have a female, I think, minority, police, ex-police officer who, who did what they wanted to do, who'd never been necessary in their life. But that's by the by. I don't care. But I just, I just don't... I don't like being in a world where... where things aren't as straightforward as you want them to no. be, or you expect they are, you know? No, it's frustrating. Um, and, and another, you know, it's the same broadcaster, actually. I won't say which one, but the same broadcaster. We pitched something to them for Revelation, and they came back and said, no, we're only interested in police stories at the moment if they involve corruption or racism. But that's so... Somebody has got... Someone has got to fight the good fight, and Nobody someone does. has got to... Nobody does. No. Because it doesn't make good and, television. And, no, exactly that. But yet, we've proved that. We've proved that with Real Manhunter. We've quadrupled the viewing figures for that slot on a, on a Monday night for, yeah. for Sky Crime by presenting good police work, showcasing good police work, yeah. and saying and showing people how how they can rely, how they can be made safer, how we can do the thing we're meant yeah. to be doing. If, you know, and, and, and that's, in, in many ways, that's... Much more my motivation for writing the books and writing those, because the truth of the matter is, you know, you don't become a millionaire writing true crime books. No, it's not J.K. Rowling or Frederick Forsyth. No, you, know? um, you don't even become a millionaire writing true crime books that get turned into ITV nine million viewer documentaries. No, of you know, so it's not about that, but it's about 
it's about, say, it all started off, I wanted to showcase the fact that I had this privilege of leading such an exceptional bunch of people and why. And it's all stemmed from there. And I'll, you know, I've rolled with the waves so far. I'll keep rolling with them until they they subside, you know. Well, Colin, we've been chatting for a while. Before we conclude this interview, is there anything you'd like to add, alter or correct in what you've said love, so far? I love that. And I can't remember it so long since we started. I'm getting older. I can't remember what I said to so correct anything. No, I mean, I, I just, I think that the stuff we got to at the end, of, look, I, I, I'm, I've been fantastically lucky. I've been so lucky in my whole life with, with things that have happened to me where I found myself in situations where um, I couldn't have dreamt of being. You know, and I've done, I've done, yeah, we haven't touched all the other madcap things that I've done. In well, we could do that again. Yeah, but, you know, the, the selling cars, to, selling selling classic minis to Mexico, the DJing. DJing? The, yeah, yeah. The, you know, all the sort of stuff that I've somehow got involved with. I've, I've, and it's just pushing yourself. It's, it's just pushing yourself. Yeah, why can't I do that? And that's all I say to everyone. I say it to my kids. And I, I'll say, I've got three grandchildren now, three grandsons. Brilliant. And I'll say that to them. You just push yourself. There's nothing that they can't do. No. Nothing they can't do. No. And I'm the same, mate. You know, yeah. I, I just keep going. And Henry Ford was it? I used to have this. I had two. I had two kind of um, mantras or whatever you'd call them, sort of things on the wall in my office when we were doing Belfield. One was a verse from my school song, the Latimer School Song, which says, "Clear before us the task, heroic, high endeavour, lasting fame, glorious end from small beginning, priceless worth of honoured name," and goes on. Yeah. And the other was a quote, I think it's from Henry Ford, which says, if you think you can or you think you can't, you'll be correct. And that's the big one. Absolutely. That's the big one. Well, Colin, thank you so much for your time, sir. And um, I've really enjoyed our chat. I've enjoyed it as well. Thanks, mate. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.